You're listening to the Dogaritaville Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Lily. We are two dog professionals with two different styles, two different backgrounds, and two common goals. To drink delicious margaritas and talk about dogs. Welcome to Dogaritaville. Welcome to episode two of the Dogaritaville Podcast. I'm really excited about today's show because we are talking about training methods. First, we're going to give you a crash course in dog training to bring clarity to the subject. Then Laura and I will both tell you which methods we use and why, because we are different. After that, we'll discuss where we agree. And to end the episode, we'll have a tiny open forum between the two of us to ask questions about each other's methods and perhaps talk about anything we've learned. So that's our topic for today. And just as importantly, our margarita theme is pineapple. For every episode, we do our best to create a delicious margarita around our theme. We post the recipes on Instagram so you can try them at home. If you have an idea for a theme, let us know. We'll keep you updated throughout the episode about how we're enjoying our beverages. We both took different routes to this episode's pineapple margarita, so you'll have some options. Okay, Laura, I have to talk to you about something really serious. My mom texted me very concerned because in our last episode, we said we're not smart enough for college. And she wants our listeners to know that we're both very smart and conventional education wasn't the right path for us. To our listeners, my mom Kim would like you to know that Laura and I are super duper smart. With that in mind, let's get started. Thanks, mom. So the first thing we want to do is just provide some clarity on dog training, how it works and which methods are most commonly used. Lily, can you start us off with talking a little bit about operant conditioning? Yeah, operant conditioning is a method of learning that relies on rewards and punishments to shape behavior. And it is not the only tool in a dog trainer's tool belt, so this is not an entire dog training crash course for you guys, but it is a huge one, so we want to give you just a little baby tutoring session on this. All right, there are four quadrants of operant conditioning. Positive and negative reinforcement are two of the quadrants. Positive and negative punishment are two of the quadrants. And it does get a little bit confusing because we're used to thinking of positive and negative in terms of good or bad, but in operant conditioning, positive and negative refers to whether you are adding something to a situation or removing something from a situation. The word reinforcement implies that you're trying to get the dog to repeat the behavior, and the word punishment implies that you're trying to get the dog to not repeat the behavior anymore. Really brief course here. Positive reinforcement is sitting gets a treat. So I'm adding something good to a behavior that I want to see again. When my dog sits, he gets a treat. He wants to sit more. Negative reinforcement would be if I pushed my dog's butt down to the ground and he was trying to figure out how to get me to stop putting pressure on him. And once he sat, I removed the pressure. So now he wants to keep sitting because I've removed something bad from the situation. So negative reinforcement, something bad gets removed. Positive punishment means I'm adding something to try to stop a behavior. So an example of this, if your dog jumps up on you and he gets a shock on the shock collar, that is a positive punishment. He will not want to repeat that behavior because it makes something bad happen. And negative punishment is if your dog is jumping on you to get your attention. If you remove your attention, he is less likely to keep jumping on you because it doesn't work to get him what he wants. So you're removing something good in order to stop a behavior. And since our podcast is geared toward the average dog owner, 
we want to explain these principles, but we also realize it will be very confusing to keep using those terms and forcing you to remember what they mean. So to be as clear as possible, in this episode, we'll be referring to positive reinforcement as adding something good, negative reinforcement as removing something bad, positive punishment as adding something bad, and negative punishment as removing something good. So with that in mind, Lara, why don't you explain to us the different methods of dog training, what they are, and what you're likely to see with each one. So let's start off by just saying that there is absolutely no regulation in dog training, at least not in the U.S. Anyone can start a dog training business at any time without any experience, knowledge, or skill, which is mind-blowing and frustrating, but... (laughs) Every trainer has their own methods, and so we always encourage everybody to interview any prospective trainer that you have beyond asking just for their certification or what they identify as and actually find out what they do because there's a lot of semantics and things like that that can get dicey. (laughs) But here are some general guidelines. Positive trainers operate primarily in reward-based training uh, with little to no corrections. They tend to use treats for most, if not everything, and spend a lot of time working on foundation and desensitization for behavior modification. (laughs) One of the big complaints that you'll generally hear about this method is just the amount of time and work that it requires, which isn't a bad thing, but in my opinion is not always super realistic. The pro, of course, is obviously you have a really great relationship with your dog, and generally you have a pretty happy, confident dog as well. Right. So positive trainers, you may have also heard of them as force-free trainers. I don't know what else they're kind of calling themselves that you can look for, but they're dealing with rewards, so they're dealing with that positive reinforcement, adding good things, and negative punishment, removing good things. Balanced trainers call themselves balanced in theory because they use a wide variety of methods and tools tailored to the individual owner or the individual dog. They are willing to assess the dog and the problem at hand and use a vast toolbox to address the situation. The problem you find here is that a lot of balanced trainers are not really balanced and still use aversive tools really heavily regardless of the dog or the issue. The upside of this method, though, is that it tends to be a little bit more customized in that you just have a lot more options to cater to the specific owner and the specific dog's circumstance. Unfortunately, in my experience, I feel like balanced training has just become a way for aversive trainers to not call themselves aversive trainers (laughs) and just avoid saying what they really are, which can be frustrating. Yeah, definitely. So just to clarify, balanced trainers will tell you that they use all four quadrants of operant conditioning. But I agree with Laura. A lot of them say that they use positive methods until they won't work anymore. Then they start using aversives. Personally, I've never met a balanced dog trainer who didn't immediately put a shock collar on a dog that they just met. So I don't buy that. Like you see all of these training videos from balanced training, like on their Facebook pages or whatever, that they're teaching dogs how to stay on their mats by getting shocked when they leave the mat. And if you're really telling me that you couldn't teach a dog a place with the default stay using treats, then I don't know how hard you really tried. (laughs) And also, when I ran a doggy daycare, one of my clients, on advice of her quote-unquote balanced trainer, brought in her 12-week-old Pomsky on a prong collar. And, like, (laughs) if he really tried using positive methods before throwing a prong collar on an eight-pound puppy, then I do not trust his ability to train a dog using positive methods. I was actually kind of surprised when you said that, though, about, like, they use positive until they can't anymore. I've never heard of balance described that way. 
I've always just heard of it as we use all tools. And so... And to be fair, just like we said at the beginning of this, every trainer is going to be different. Everyone's going to have a different reason that they do balance training and a different way that they do balance training. But that is one thing that I've heard it described as. So then we come to what I call aversive training. It's called a lot of things just like everything else. And disclaimer, I don't think either one of us is really qualified to truly speak on this because neither of us have studied it, neither of us generally use it, and we're both varying degrees of against it. But aversive trainers tend to live mostly in a correction-based world, wherein dogs learn by forcing corrections with tools like prongs or shock collars. As I understand it, and again, I'm not entirely sure how accurate this is, but the big difference between what would be a balanced trainer and an aversive trainer would be the belief in dominance or alpha theory, which I'll withhold my comments, but we all know. <laughs> <laughs> and we will talk about that later in the episode. Yeah. <laughs> the lines definitely get blurred because, like we talked about balanced trainers, a lot of them tend to put every single dog in a prong or a shock. So obviously you're not balanced, you're aversive. But again, semantics will be here all day if we do that, so... Basically, I see aversive trainers as believing in dominance or alpha theory. So now the big question, do all of these methods work? So I always tell my clients that, yes, uh, the aversive methods work. If, if they didn't work, they probably wouldn't be so popular. If you take dog reactivity, for instance, whether you use treats and desensitize them to seeing dogs or shock the shit out of them every time they see a dog and react to get them to stop, arguably the end result is going to be the same. The dog stops reacting, right? And at the end of the day, I think a lot of basic owners and your average dog owner, that's all they want. Their dog loses its mind when it sees a dog and they need that to stop. Again, both ways, it will stop. <laughs> so I don't think we can say aversives don't work. I think they do. They just work in a very problematic way that can ruin your relationship with your dog as well as cause other adverse effects. But I don't think the effectiveness is kind of what we are arguing, right? It's more the ethics and the principle behind it. Sure. And I almost agree, but not quite. When you say arguably the end result's the same, that is only true if the end result you're talking about is the dog stops reacting, which which it sounds like you think that most people are just looking for that result. To me, the results are different. For instance... Laura had me listen to this podcast called Canine Aptitude, which I loved. I recommend it to all our listeners. It's really great. But they were talking about the hierarchy of dog needs. So you have to work from the bottom up, dealing with your dog's physical and emotional and mental needs before any real change can actually occur. That's a concept that you actually introduced me to when I first started working with Mooney. I had no idea that that's something I needed to be thinking about. I was just thinking about, I want Mooney to act different. And I wasn't thinking about meeting his needs or doing it in an appropriate way. So anyway, sure, you might be making that reaction stop if you shock the shit out of a dog when he sees another dog, but you're not changing the dog's internal response to the trigger. And in fact, you're actually making it much worse because you're adding stress every time your dog sees something that it already hates. So my definition of something working is that you're changing that internal response of the dog. Also, it's been proven that a dog trained under stress is actually not learning in an effective way. So they're not able to retain information as well. Behaviors are not long lasting. And because behaviors are being suppressed and not dealt with on that hierarchy of needs, you're likely to see those behaviors return in the future. And you might even see them return immediately anytime the aversives are not present. Like if the shot collar is not on the dog when you're on a walk, he will just lose his mind at every dog that he sees. 
And when, when those behaviors do return, they're likely to be much more extreme. Because again, we've made the dog's internal response so much worse. So his external response is likely to also be much worse. So to me, that doesn't fall under my definition of what works to stop behavior if it's conditional, if it's temporary, and if it resurfaces with a vengeance. I wonder though if you're saying like, obviously the response will come back if it's not wearing the collar, which I 100% agree with, it will. But couldn't you say the same thing for treats? Like if you don't have treats, your dog's going to react too, because without the treats, why wouldn't it go back to reacting? So we'll go in depth in our final segment about how it is possible to just try throwing treats at a problem and it can make the problem worse. But if I am using treats correctly in that situation, they are not rewards for a specific behavior. They're being used to condition a different feeling that the dog has about the trigger. So I'm dealing with the root cause of the symptom. The root of the problem is this dog is not comfortable around this trigger. The symptom is some sort of reactivity. If I'm using pain or fear to deal with the symptom or the reactivity, the underlying issue of discomfort with this trigger still exists and there will be symptoms of that. Whether the symptom is barking, growling, lunging, or whether the symptom is shutting down completely, there will be symptoms. With desensitization and classical counterconditioning, I'm dealing with the cause of the symptom, which will make the symptoms disappear. So to answer your question, once I've changed that response, no, I won't need treats any longer, I won't need shocks or any sort of tool to deal with a symptom from now on because the issue is resolved. Now, dear listener, beloved average dog owner, that was a ton of information, and I know I just used some terms that we've not explained, and you cannot go train your reactive dog solely based on the word soup that I just served you, but that is the answer to Lara's question of why you will not have to use treats forever to work with reactivity. All right, that was a lot of information. (laughs) That was a lot of information to process. So let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we will talk about how we made our margaritas and why we train the way we do. Margarita check. Lara, how did you make your pineapple themed margarita today? Oh, it's so delicious. I tried out a couple different recipes leading up to this. They were all great. (laughs) Um, But so today I did three ounces of pineapple juice, one ounce of lime juice, one and a half ounces of tequila, three-fourth ounce of, I substituted triple sec for pineapple liqueur, which was delightful. Uh, And then... (laughs) squeaking back there. (laughs) That's okay. I think think it is appropriate to have squeakies in our podcast. (laughs) Sorry, my dog Doobie is murdering a cephalopod it's fine (laughs) so three-fourths ounce pineapple liqueur instead of triple sec and then one teaspoon agave only one teaspoon of agave are you happy that i lowered my agave i mean especially because there are three ounces of pineapple juice yes i'm very happy that yeah right that was my reasoning too i was like (laughs) i don't think i i don't even think i could handle both (laughs) how did you make yours with like 85 ounces of tequila, I'm sure. Okay, so I only used two and a quarter <laughs> ounces of tequila oh. in this one. So I used one and a half limes, two and a quarter ounces tequila, three quarters of an ounce pineapple Patron citronage, no agave this time, shaken, and I strained it over ice this time because last week mine got a little warm. And I did put sugar on the rim, which I don't usually do for a classic margarita, but I thought it would be good with the pineapple 
and then I garnished it with a grilled pineapple, <laughs> and it is very delicious. I made fun of her for grilling her pineapple. Um, some of us just used canned pineapple to garnish. <laughs> some of you deal with jealousy by making fun of other people. <laughs> <laughs> She's not wrong. <laughs> It's still good, though. All right. So we are going to get into talking about our training methods, what we use in our dog training careers, and explain why. So I'll go first. I am a positive trainer, and that is, again, not referring to the word positive in the quadrants of operant conditioning that we talked about earlier. It's referring to the fact that I deal with things that the dogs find to be positive. So I use positive reinforcement, adding something good, and negative punishment, removing something good. I'm the giver and taker of good things, and above all, I'm trying to be the giver of good things. I don't use aversive tools. I will never, ever hurt a dog. And as much as some trainers will say that prongs and shocks don't hurt your dog, that is a bald-faced lie. (laughs) Those tools absolutely cause pain to your dog. So I get a little defensive here because I feel like the same argument that a lot of people use for prong collars specifically, they use the same argument against slip leads, which I use a lot. Do you use slip leads? I thought you did, but maybe you don't. I learned how to do it on slip leads because I learned from you, but I don't I don't use them anymore. I have a feeling <laughs> I have a feeling about slip leads. I I've been attacked similarly about the harnesses that I use. Oh, really? I I have. Yeah. And these are outliers. I feel like these people really are outliers, but they're pretty intense and so I remember this interaction. I feel I think I don't feel like they're outliers because it happens all the time by so many people sure like you're you're using a harness are we really gonna flip out about what kind of harness like well come on and and to me so the reason that i don't feel that way about slip leads and flat collars martin go collars harnesses like whatever it is i feel that if you are using that as a tool and relying on that tool to get your dog to walk the way you want then yeah absolutely that's aversive because you are relying on that pressure or whatever it is to stop your dog from pulling. But I think that no matter what you're walking your dog on, if you've taught the dog to walk on a loose leash using positive methods, then they're not going to be pulling and experiencing that pressure. And so therefore you can put anything on them that you want, like throw a prong collar on if you want. It's never going to hurt them, but then you don't need it because a prong collar is literally just a tool. Does that make sense? Well, and I think that's where we get into like tools aren't training, right? Right. If you cannot walk your dog without a slip lead, then your dog is not leash trained, obviously. Right. Well, and if you're just walking your dog on a slip lead, I don't have a problem with that. But but if you're relying on that slip lead to do the work for you, then that's not training to me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So I think kind of what we're getting at is just tools aren't training, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yep. And obviously the whole function of a prong collar is that it is intended to be the training. Well, and I think we could make that argument for all aversives, right? It doesn't take any skill or finesse. It just does the work for you, which is part of the appeal. Right. Yep. Exactly. Which, again, we'll get into more later. I feel like we we get ahead of ourselves a lot. That's okay. We just have a lot to say. Oh, if you've ever met two people with more to say than us, I would not like to meet them. I mean, that's why we're here. Right. (laughs) Okay. Back to why I train positively. So I, I don't use aversive tools. I also try not to use aversive methods. So I try not to be the giver and taker of bad things. Science has shown us that positive reinforcement produces the best, longest-lasting results in dog training. You can Google that, read all about it if you're truly interested in what science has to say. For now, I'm just going to put things in my own words because this is a podcast, and I think that's more interesting to listen to than me just babbling at you science speak. 
The reason that I always train positively is I believe that you always have a choice to do so. I believe that there's always a choice to use aversive methods with a dog or to not. I think that every dog behavior can be modified with positive methods. I know there are many bounce trainers who say they use positive methods till they don't work or until the dog knows better, which is my pet peeve. If a trainer is telling you that your dog knows better and is intentionally trying to make you upset, that's just a person who doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> and But anyway, so they'll wait till the dog knows better and then they'll use aversive tools. I'm not on board with that explanation. There's no point where your dog knows better and is choosing to do the wrong thing. Dogs don't have a moral compass. They don't understand the concept of right and wrong. This is something I could talk about for 12 hours, and I will try not to. But but your dog only <laughs> understands what's comfortable for him and what meets his needs. So if your dog appears to know better, he doesn't. He literally can't. When the dog isn't doing what you're asking or expecting, it, it tells me that we've not set up the dog to understand which behaviors will work and meet his needs. So all that to say, I believe positive methods, if, if they're not working, it's because we're not using them correctly. So real quick. Yeah. I have I have definitely said like, your dog knows what to do. Right. Right? My dogs have to sit to come out of their kennel every single time. They come out of their kennels a dozen times a day. They have to sit to do it. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I've definitely told clients like when they refuse to sit before they go out a door, before, if they refuse to sit before coming out of a kennel, like... He knows what he needs to do. If your dog has to sit every time it comes out of a kennel and then randomly chooses not to do that, you're saying that we're just reinforcing it wrong or that just the semantics of like he doesn't know that that's wrong? That's a good question. So I get that with my dogs too. They they also have to sit to be let out, out of the crate. And there are some days that it takes them a little bit longer than other days. That's not because they're deliberately defying what they know they should do. I think that for some reason, the stakes have just changed in that moment. So maybe there's something a lot more rewarding okay. about running out of the crate. Okay. So you're just saying that they're not doing it maliciously, but it's not that they like don't understand that, yeah, we do this every time. You have to do it to get out. Right. And, and I think that in some situations to the dog, it seems like it might be re- more rewarding to try, like keep trying to just bolt out of the crate. Oh, don't I know it. Right. And to be totally honest, it is so cathartic sometimes to act like your dog knows what you want him to do and to get <laughs> and to get mad about it. Like, and, yeah. and to be like, why are you being an asshole? Like, it's, I understand that human need, but like, I'm just saying don't bring that into your training and don't actually get mad at okay. your dog, you know? And also, to be clear, sometimes you're not going to get it right the first time when you try working with your dog with positive methods. So it can take trial and error to figure out why the dog's not responding what the dog finds rewarding, and there may be a point where you feel like your positive methods are not working. And to me, that's a cue that that I misidentified something or I didn't have a clear picture of the dog. It's not a cue to start using aversives. It's a cue to try something else, but it, it should still fit within positive training methods, in my opinion. Since I believe you always have a choice to modify behavior using positive or aversive methods, I'm always going to choose positive not only because it's scientifically proven to produce the best, longest lasting results, but also because I just can't bring myself to, to do aversive methods. I don't want to be the giver and taker of bad things. And I, I think that even if they were equally effective to positive, I still wouldn't choose them. And I would probably still be really baffled by the people who did. So that's me. Laura, what about you? I don't really like to identify myself <laughs> just because I feel like there's problems in all realms so i i i used to identify as force free but like we talked about last time the instagram world very adamantly told me i was not force free so 
<laughs> I guess I identify as balanced if I have to identify as something, but I try to just stay out of it because it drives me a little bit nuts. Um, <laughs> and no matter what you say you are, someone will correct you. Well, and that's one of the big reasons why I stopped identifying as like force-free or positive is because it's like, oh, will you use kennels? Oh, will you use flat collars? Oh, you use martingales. And I'm like, I can't. I just can't. I can't. <laughs> I can't have a house of, of seven plus dogs and not use kennels. I can't do it. Yep. There's, it's not possible. Yep. <laughs> Coming from the shelter and rescue world, which is where I started, that's a lot of like re- reality-based situations that have kind of just led me and started me in being a little bit more open to kind of all methods and tools. In the beginning, I was absolutely purely positive. I thought slip leads were mean. I thought crates were mean, but to be honest, I still feel pretty force-free. I mean, there are certain things that I obviously aren't, but for the most part, I would still identify as force-free had it not been for Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) In my personal experience, the positive world is just so heavily rooted in bullying and ostracizing and telling everybody that they're wrong, even if they're also positive like we touched on, which I think is just really ironic and hypocritical. So I have a little bit of a vendetta against the positive world, but it has nothing to do with the actual training methods. (laughs) So super early in my shelter career, we worked a lot with Amy Sadler because the shelter that I worked at was starting playgroups. And at the time, as far as I know, she pretty much created kind of shelter playgroups or the idea of it. Is she Dogs Playing for Life? Yep. Yeah. One of the first seminars that I went to about dog behavior ever was with her and she had us bring some of our shelter dogs to be demo dogs. And at the time, I didn't do any training. I didn't know what balanced was. I had no idea she was considered that. She just kind of explained to us, like, hey, I use all tools. I mean, a leash in general can be aversive to some dogs. So I use all tools. It just depends on the dog. And at the time, I didn't really think much of that. So years and years later, when I discovered what balance training is supposed to be, I felt like that was what I identified with most. Unfortunately, I soon discovered that it's mostly just... A lot of people using aversive tools on every single dog, no matter what. (laughs) Right. I don't know why the semantics of that have gotten so crazy, but I feel like to me, balance training is Amy Sadler, who uses all tools. Yes, she does use shot collars sometimes, but she's certainly, I've seen her put shot collars on like a couple dogs. I feel like she's a really good example of actual balance training where she evaluates the dog, she evaluates the issue, and then picks the tool accordingly. Uh, which is kind of how I feel and what I want to strive to be. But at the same time, too, like, I do always want to be positive. I'm not super comfortable with harnesses, which I feel like is just an education thing. And there's a lot of continuing education that I want to do on all ends of the spectrum as far as, like, I want to learn how to use harnesses and get more comfortable with them. But I also want to learn how to use e-collars just so that I know, (laughs) just so I know how they work. I don't use treats a ton. I do use them, but not for everything. Like, obviously, I use them for crate training, but I would never personally use treats for leash training, much less reactivity, just because I feel like the timing on that is so, so tricky. If I can't do the timing on that, my client is certainly not going to be able to do the timing on that. Sure. And I won a lot of the reactive dogs. You're going to have steak in your hand, and they're going to be like, I don't care. And then also, too... For me, I get really stuck in the, like, their headspace is still the same, right? Like, they still saw that dog, and they're still super pissed about it. So even if they're taking the food, like, mentally, are we rewarding the wrong thing? 
so just the timing on that it makes me nervous and I don't like it <laughs> and then for leash training I just I generally just use like positioning and distance and stuff I don't use leash corrections or anything like that but just the basic premise of you hit the end of the leash we're gonna go back just to start teaching them where the end of the leash is for reactive dogs I do use some tug and release but for leash training it's it's just forward and backwards motion so yeah I think the the primary reason that I consider myself balanced over positive is just that sometimes especially in the shelter world like reality just doesn't give you that option I very, very regularly am met with the need for immediate or super fast results in order for a dog not to either lose their home or, God forbid, lose their life. If I walk into a client's house and it's like, this dog wants to eat my husband, <laughs> I'm, they're not going to tolerate that for months on end while we desensitize the dog to the husband. Like, that's just not going to happen. That dog's either going to get euthanized or surrendered if I can't fix it in a decent amount of time and see like pretty immediate improvement. And whether or not those expectations are are okay, I mean, no. Obviously, I would prefer that everybody have six months on their hands, but they don't and they're not going to. And should the dog die because of that? I don't think so. (laughs) So, I mean, I always strive to be positive, of course. And I definitely do fire clients all the time that have unrealistic expectations or ones that are just lazy and want to use aversive methods just because they don't want to do the work. Like, I don't tolerate that at all. But there are clients that I have that, you know, we've been working for months and months and we've been working really hard and we've seen a little bit of improvement. But the reality is their dog still loses its mind over whatever the trigger is. And so it's like the reality of it is, is now we're in a position where that dog gets surrendered or euthanized. So if, if that's what it comes down to, I'm going to put a shot collar on a dog long before I euthanize it. <laughs> and I mean, it does. That's those are rare. That's not every case. Don't get me wrong. Which is where I have a problem with the balance trainer that use it for every dog. So yeah, I always try to be positive, but the reality of the situation is... If it comes down to it and that dog's either going to get surrendered or euthanized, then I'm willing to take some shortcuts, which I feel like a lot of aversives, that's kind of what they are, is shortcuts. All right, that was a bit of a deep dive into what makes us different and why we train the way we do. We will take a break now, and when we get back, we will talk about where we agree and what makes us the same. Margarita check. Laura, how are you enjoying your pineapple margarita? Uh, I'm on my second one. (laughs) And it's delightful. I am also on my second one. (laughs) Which I need to start just expecting Laura to be late because I finished almost a whole one of these before we started. (laughs) I think that it might be a little more fun to listen to us talking while we're just a little bit tipsy. But also, I feel like I'm trying... It's going to suck for your editing, though. (laughs) Totally. And and like I'm trying to speak intelligently. My mom wants you to know that I'm smart. And so I can't just be here like stumbling over my words. Anyways. Yeah, it definitely it makes it more entertaining, but it, it's going to make the editing harder and it doesn't make us sound great. But also, I feel like people are more worried about entertainment. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're fun at the very least. Right. So we've talked about what makes us different. Now let's move into what makes us the same and what we agree on. The first thing that came to mind for Laura and I on this is we both agree that dog professionals can go overboard wherever they fall on this spectrum. So aversive and balanced trainers, they will often talk about positive trainers like we're these soft hippie pacifists who don't have the balls to discipline our dogs. 
And that's really unfair and misleading. And I've also seen positive trainers freak out about things like crating, like we said earlier. That seems excessive to me. Like, if you don't want to crate your dog, then don't. It's an absolute necessity for me and my dogs, which Laura knows, at least for one of them. So my dog, they're not in danger. They're, they're, they've both been conditioned to enjoy their crates. If you get in my face about creating my dogs, then I, I feel like I can just identify you as someone who's not worth my time, honestly. Uh, I've seen positive trainers that I've, I've taken over their clients. And, you know, it's an aggressive large breed dog that weighs 60, 80 plus pounds. And it's aggressive to visitors. And because they don't believe in crates, they tell it to put it in an X-Pen. And oh, I mean, geez. that's just... Yeah, that's I literally walked into that situation. And to be fair, that specific dog was not super aggressive, but he had bitten multiple times. And he can definitely hop out of that. A hundred percent. Like, that is just not safe. It's just flat out not safe. And I'm not okay with that. Right. Like, you can hate crates all you want. And this dog in specific did really, really hate the crate. But just the fact that it wasn't even a question. It was just like, oh, no, we'll use an X-Pen. Which, like, the reality is... An X-Pen is not that much different from a kennel, other than being way less secure. (laughs) But, so I mean, that's just safety for me. Like, I'm not going to put a large, aggressive dog in an X-Pen built for small dogs and puppies that it could knock over with one hand. I'm not going to do that. But on the other side, too, I will try to keep my calm in this conversation. (laughs) Because, oh my God, how mad do I get? So on the other hand, too, not only do aversives, lately I've been seeing a lot of aversive trainers use shock collars and prong collars at the same time, which blows my, like, so you're literally like, I listened to a video or something and it was like, pop the prong and then zap the shock. And I'm like, (gasps) what the, what? Again, I'm not anti either of those things. But there's no way that you can make sense to using both of them together to me. Like, my brain cannot compute that. Anyways, and then my favorite (sighs) is something called a bopper, which is literally a rolled up towel, like a rolled up bath towel. And you smack your dog in the fucking face. (laughs) I feel like my swearing was very warranted there. (laughs) Absolutely. And... My brother and sister do listen to this, so like, sorry guys, but <laughs> the amount of all capital letters texts that I've gotten from Laura about <laughs> boppers, <laughs> I could fill a book with them. <laughs> so literally, I first heard about boppers because some trainer, I don't even know his name, some Instagram famous trainer basically got like called out for using boppers in some seminar. The seminar happened in Las Vegas, which I didn't know. But there's a video of, I don't know if it's him or the owner using a bopper on their dog. And so that video came out and everybody lost their minds, right? Because obviously you're hitting a dog in the face with a towel. Okay? <laughs> obviously. I said I was going to keep my cool and I'm absolutely You didn't. Not. You didn't do but- it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this video came out and that was the first time I had ever heard of boppers. And this blew my mind. And so I'm thinking like oh, this is some schmo, he's not a real trainer, blah, blah, no, no, no. This is like a legit trainer that does seminars all over the country for other trainers, trains thousands of people, 
has millions of hits on his videos. And when the video came out and everybody lost their minds, he doubled down on it. And like still to this day uses boppers and advocates for boppers and talks about them more now because everybody hates them so much. That's marketing 101. Like your business is doing well if you're repelling people, right? That that means you found your niche and there are people who are going to pay out the ass for you to hit their dog in the face with a towel. <laughs> I, I mean, that's astounding. To, not only like the basics of like somebody's paying you to tell them to hit your dog in the face with a towel, which you could very easily just do on your own. But like, <laughs> DIY. At, right? Well, and it's like, I just have flashbacks to like, yeah, it's the 50s and we're rolling up a newspaper again. Anyways. A- another point that Laura and I do agree on is that when trainers are working outside of their skills or their knowledge, it's irresponsible. I think we both agree. It's okay to not know how to work with every dog. It's okay to not know how to work with every behavior. But you absolutely must be upfront about that. Be honest with your client. Don't pretend to know what you're doing to save face or to make an extra dollar. So yeah, I regularly get clients or dogs in rescue with this exact problem. So like one of my fosters right now is a severely aggressive chihuahua, which I know <laughs> I know it sounds silly. And I always thought it was silly too. But this little dude is just mean. Like he's very mean. <laughs> And he was almost euthanized. My rescue got him from a no-kill rescue that was going to euthanize him because he had over 20 bites to his record. The notes in his file said, and I quote, tried training did not work. And so instantly my red flags go up and I'm like, oh, we might have to euthanize this dog. And we find out that this dog that needs heavy duty behavior mod, he's arguably one of the hardest dogs I've worked with no joke and the training that didn't work was PetSmart training (laughs) (laughs) and when I found that out I was so upset because obviously a PetSmart trainer is not and no offense to PetSmart trainers but generally they do not do any sort of behavior modification they're almost strictly obedience as far as I know and and it's it's possible that someone who knows about behavior mod could be hired at PetSmart, but they are hired at PetSmart to do obedience, and so we can't expect them to know anything outside of exactly. that. Exactly. I have nothing against PetSmart trainers. Obviously, that is not going to solve his severe resource guarding and severe fear aggression. It's not going to. But now he's been labeled as though he's beyond help, and immediately when I saw that note, I thought, oh shit, we're going to have to euthanize this dog because training doesn't work. And really, it's just a massive miscommunication because the training that he went to was not behavior modification training. So, yeah, one of the things that I really like is I work with a local training company called Michael Angel Paws, um, and they do basic obedience classes. And like they used to do agility classes. I'm not sure if they still do. But their primary mission is service dogs and therapy dogs. But I love them because they're constantly giving me clients. They don't take any sort of reactivity or aggression. If your dog has bit or is reactive, they don't, they're not touching it, period. And it's like, that's, that's great. There is no reason for you to take on something that you are not equipped to handle. Just like I refer out clients who want to use training collars or shock collars. I'm not trained on them. So you're going to need to go to someone else. It's not a big deal. You're not a bad trainer if you do that. Okay. Yeah. You really don't need to save face. I mean, just be honest. The last point that we wrote down to talk about concerning where we're the same is that aversive training is outdated. 
and dominance theory isn't real. And so when we say aversive training is outdated, obviously, Laura's a balance trainer. We're not talking specifically about using all tools and all quadrants. We're talking about using only aversive methods and dominance theory. Teeny tiny crash course, once again, on dominance. It's not a thing, or at least not in the way (laughs) you've probably been told. Your dog's not trying to dominate you or to take over the social hierarchy of your household or to take over the house in any sort of way. And again, this is something I'm passionate about and could talk about for a million years. But for now, I'll just leave you with that. If you need further clarification, there's tons of information online and I would encourage you to go check it out. So we don't need to go around saying his name on our podcast, but (laughs) the famed dog whisperer, let's talk about it. I know a lot of people have a lot of feelings about him, but being open to more methods, he really, I don't feel one way or another about him. Some of his videos 100% make me want to die, but I also don't hate him. I think he's okay. To be fair, I think he knows more about dog behavior than a lot of other trainers. (laughs) And I personally am a huge believer that I can learn from anyone. So I follow a lot of aversive trainers. I know one that me and Lily don't agree on, Tom Davis. I don't agree with everything he does. He's one of the ones that I know is is doing shocks and prongs together, which I think is... Bananas. Yeah, just so dumb. But I love his videos. I always learn something. Like, I have a good time following him. (laughs) That doesn't mean I agree with all his methods. I'm also not going to attack him with a pitchfork. But so, yeah, I feel like I can learn something from anyone. And I, I feel like Caesar makes good TV. And I do usually learn something, but I definitely don't agree with everything. And the big thing for me with him is like, why, why do you get bit so much? He gets bit doing dumb things. Like, it's not like, oh, we were working on this and the dog redirected, but it's like he put his hand in the dog's bowl and it was food aggressive. Like, yeah, of course you got bit. What are you doing? Like, what are you doing? (laughs) But yeah, some of his videos are just flat out wrong. And there's one video in particular on there that makes me a little bit ragey. It's a reactive, like, bully-type dog. And so he takes this dog out of a harness into a slip lead, which, again, I use slip leads. I'm fine with it. But he's just choking this dog out the whole time because it's not leash-trained. It's pulling like crazy. And then it's reactive, so immediately they see a dog. So not only is he choking the hell out of this dog, he just, like, the dog won't calm down, obviously. And so he, like, alpha rolls it. I don't know if it was a true alpha roll, but the dog ended up, like, he pushed the dog and the dog was on his side. Right. That's not, if that's not an alpha roll, I don't know what is. And I, to be fair, don't know what an alpha roll is because they're stupid. But so, like, the dog that they were dealing with was obviously severely reactive or he wouldn't be there. And the dog that they're passing is, like, maybe 10 feet away. Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, like they're on the sidewalk. They don't move from the sidewalk. And the passing dog goes into somebody's yard to pass it. So, like, that's how far away they were. So, from my viewpoint, like, this dog, this reactive dog is blatantly telling you that it cannot handle this situation. Mm -hmm. And so, instead of, like, saying, hey, I hear you. Let's see where we need to go so that you can handle it a little bit better. Right. Instead, you force it into that situation and then punish it. Right. I don't understand. Like, you're just setting up a dog to fail so that you can correct it and try to teach it that way, which doesn't make any sense because the dog doesn't actually learn anything. Right. And in my opinion, like, after that kind of training, if your dog seems calm, that's just a shutdown dog. Your dog is not actually calm in the presence of that trigger. I just want to clarify, when you say he knows more about dog behavior than most, 
he has really good instincts. He instinctively knows how to communicate, how to use good timing, but he could obviously benefit tremendously from learning how to channel that intuition into something that will work. And unfortunately, he does not have to because he is the dog training king of the world. There's no incentive for this guy to change what he's doing because his version of behavior mod makes great TV because there's lots of discomfort in the dogs, like lots of barking, snarling, appearing totally crazy. And honestly, you guys, if you had a perfect behavior mod session, it was very boring and no one wants to watch that on TV. And so now this style of training's out there. It's popular. It's heavily edited so it looks like it works. And that's the content that the average dog owner is consuming and internalizing as correct. All right, we've talked a lot about where we disagree and where we agree. So let's take a little bit of a break. And when we come back, we'll do our final margarita check. And then we will chat about our takeaways and our questions for one another. Final margarita check. Are you happy with your margarita? Would you do anything differently? I feel like you would never do anything differently because you're so damn good at margaritas. Okay. I'm really good at the classic margarita. This was fun for me to experiment with. I, I actually did do something different today than I did when I tried it out the other day because the other day I used coconut tequila. I kind of wish that I had done that again, but the reason that I changed from it is that the pineapple citronage from Patron strongly overpowered the coconut and I couldn't taste it. So I was like, I'll just use your regular tequila, but now I can actually taste the difference. I kind of wish I'd kept it in. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way when I was testing out recipes the other day. I did the pineapple liqueur in lieu of tequila because I thought it was pineapple flavored tequila, which it's not. And that shit was delightful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I say if you like it, just do it, you know? I mean, I don't know that it was a true margarita because apparently it didn't have tequila in it, but... You know, we we are dog professionals. We are not margarita professionals. Like, if there's some margarita connoisseur out there and they listen to, like, how we make our margaritas, I'm sure they're like, that's not a margarita. So I think that, <laughs> I think we're fine. Um, but I am kind of mind blown that you didn't use pineapple juice. I didn't. Like, that yeah. just, that never, ever crossed my mind. I am kind of curious, though, because I kind of want to try, like, muddled pineapple instead of the juice, maybe, or oh, something. Oh, we'll yeah. See. You should You should grill that baby and then muddle it listen bougie i'm not (laughs) grilling no pineapple fruit is not meant to be warmed okay Mm, mm, mm -hmm. all right we're gonna finish up today's episode by talking about what we learned from each other whether there's anything we're going to try to do differently in the future or any questions that we have for one another i'll go first so one thing i kind of learned as we were creating this episode and going over everything is (laughs) i have no time And so I think kind of over the last 10 years of working with dogs because of who I am as a human being and being a workaholic, I just do nothing but work. And that's not a great recipe. I kind of noticed that and being burnt out is what has gotten me farther away from like the positive only purely positive world. So even though that's a little bit more my convictions and that sort of thing, um, I kind of need to stop and be like, hey, you know, if that's what's making you use more aversive methods, then obviously the problem is not the method, right? right. <laughs> like the problem is that you're getting in over your head and you need to stop. Sure, <laughs> yeah. 
Because I, I came into this episode being like, purely positive is bullshit. Which I had prepared for. That's what I prepared my yeah. show for, was Laura being super anti-purely positive. And so I had to change everything about what I wrote because she was like, actually, I think we basically agree. Well, and I and if you ask me, I would say that I am against purely positive just because most of the purely positive folks are assholes, to be honest. But <laughs> that you've encountered. That I've, en- I've had a lot of bad experience with purely positive people. And so I am very turned off by them. Sure. So, yeah, I think it's just made me realize that, like, I've gotten a little bit farther away from my values than I thought and that I need to rearrange my schedule and stop getting so in over my head and then using things that I don't necessarily believe in to accommodate that. Right. Right. All right. So one thing I've always been a little bit curious about is just how purely positive people would deal with, like, a severe aggression dog. I don't feel like there's a lot of purely positive people that do behavior modification. Maybe there are more than I realize. But just kind of what would the purely positive approach be to a more severe aggression case, whether that be towards people or other dogs? Yeah, that's a good question. So there, there are trainers who specialize in aggression using positive-only methods. One person who comes to mind is Michael Shikashio. Uh, he can be found at aggressivedog.com for any listeners who want to look him up. And he's also on Instagram and Facebook. He's terrific. But I think that's a very good question because it it's very easy to attempt to use positive methods and then end up making the problem worse, which I have a real life example about. So I'll go ahead and give that. I'll tell you about one of the very first dogs that I met while I was taking my canine coaching course. So I wasn't even done with my course yet. I was in the middle of it. I was doing dog walking and drop-ins through Rover at this time. I hadn't started doing training on my own. I wasn't certified. And at this point, I was just practicing what I what I learned in my class with the dogs that I took care of. To keep anonymity for this owner, I'm going to call the dog Buddy. I'll call the owner Claire. Claire reached out to me on Rover. She was like, I need someone to come drop in on my dog Buddy while I'm at work. But we're having a lot of problems with him. He's really aggressive. He doesn't like strangers. He doesn't like people coming into the house. He even bites us sometimes. He charges us every time we stand up and move around the room. He bites our guests. Like, this was a really serious problem dog. And she said, I noticed in your profile that you're an aspiring dog trainer, so I was wondering if you would be able to do these drop-ins. And I was like, I don't know, but <laughs> let's let's set up a safe scenario, see what we can accomplish. So I said, let's meet outside, have them on the leash, I'll stand in the driveway. You can let him approach me if he wants to. But if he's afraid of me or if he starts barking or growling, I'll just create space. I will walk away. I'll show him that he does not have to interact with me. So don't walk him over to me. Don't make him feel like he has to come near me. Just if he is curious and decides to come toward me, then follow him. He actually had no problem coming up to me since we were outside the house. And when he made that decision, I gave him a treat. And that's an important piece. Food can be used, absolutely to you to do counter conditioning but you can't just be throwing treats at the problem i was not holding the treat out and coaxing him i was not throwing treats at him i waited for him to make the decision to come to me and then i used that classical conditioning to show him that the decision paid off i didn't touch him didn't pet him didn't get in his face i just gave him something yummy so then we were ready to go inside And that was historically a really big trigger for him, people coming into the house. So we had to be obviously very careful. So to keep that situation safe, what we did was we kept the dog on a leash in the house, but Claire dropped the leash so it was just dragging on the ground. That way he didn't feel tethered to her. He didn't feel like he couldn't exit from the situation, but it would be easy for her to grab the leash if something were to happen. 
So I just came in. I sat down on the couch. I didn't pay attention to him at all except to just calmly give him a treat when he decided to come near me. And it went really great. It's kind of crazy to me that you had the instincts to not just walk into the house. Because, like, I would never do that with a dog that had a problem with visitors. I always have them meet me outside. But, like, that I, I don't see other trainers do that. I don't know if I've ever seen other trainers do that. Well, and, and I'm sure that that's something that I learned about in my course. But I'm also sure that there were elements of this that I learned from you. Like, you probably told me that, that you have your clients meet you outside. Anyway, we're chatting, and she tells me about a behaviorist that she had hired. So this is where we get into the part of the story where someone can attempt to use positive methods and just fuck it all up. Couldn't think of Uh a better phrase for it. Just couldn't. So this story, oh my god, it makes me so mad. Not not boppers mad for Lara, but like, (laughs) but pretty mad. For those that obviously can't see us right now, I just spit my margarita everywhere when she said that. Oh my gosh, we've got to get through this. We've got to get through this. Okay. Claire, poor Claire, paid this behaviorist just an insane amount of money to come and work with her dog. The behaviorist told Claire to tether Buddy to a chair, and the behaviorist just waltzed in the house, knowing that Buddy doesn't like visitors, doesn't have an escape route. And she just sat down across the room and, like, chucked treats at his face. That blows my mind. This is the kind of shit that makes people think that positive methods don't work. Because there are apparently some behaviorists out there who literally throw treats at a problem and expect it to go away. Of course, this behaviorist is like, this dog can't be worked with. He's not even taking the treats I'm throwing. That's in her report. He's oh, God. he's seriously aggressive, etc. Of course he wasn't taking your treats. He was so damn stressed out because... There's a stranger in his house, which he already had a conditioned response to, which you knew, and you don't give him any options except to sit there and take it. So there's my example of how someone attempted to use positive methods, but did a terrible job. So then there's me. I'm literally in the middle of my canine coaching course, not even done with it. I have absolutely no training experience, but because I understood the principles of classic counter conditioning and positive training methods, I was able to work with this dog. And I'm sure that if I looked back at what I did, I would find some flaws. Like, maybe I didn't do it perfectly. I think I think we all have those. <laughs> right. But I literally never once, never one time had a problem with this dog. I came to the house three times a week for an hour each time. He was never uncomfortable around me. Like, he's charging his owners on the daily. He's biting all their house guests. Never has an issue with me. Well, and I, I come across that quite a lot with a lot of whether they be the rescue dogs or the client dogs. And I think it's just because the way that we train and the way that we work with dogs, like, we establish immediately and very heavily, like, hey, I'm not here to mess with you. I'm not going to make you do anything. Right. I'm not going to get in your space. Like, you tell me what's up and I'm going to respect it. Yes. I'm going to try to change your mind. Yep. But, like, at no point is there going to be an argument. And dogs like that, I feel like, are used to arguing 24-7. Yes. And we we won't do it. That's such a good way to put it. So as soon as they realize, like, oh, this person's not going to argue with me, they're like, cool, you're my my friend. We're good. Right. (laughs) But also, to, like, the owner's credit, like, you can't live with a dog like that and not argue with them sometimes. (laughs) As As a normal person. Like, you and I could live with that dog and not argue with them. But as a normal person, you can't live with a dog like that. Right. It's, it's not her job to know what to do. That's my job. Yeah. You oh, know? 100%. Yeah. 
And and so over the course of working with Buddy, I would get him used to me standing up and walking around the house just using those same methods. I would like move at a speed that he could acknowledge that I was moving, but he wouldn't panic. And then I would pair that with a treat to condition a different response. So I'm not just throwing treats at him while I'm running around the house, but using <laughs> those methods effectively. So eventually I literally was able to run all around the house. He had no problems with it. Just because I feel like I need to satisfy the listener with this story, I'll just tell the end of it. So unfortunately, again, I'm not in my dog training career yet at this point. I don't have the skills to translate to this family why they're not having the same success that I'm having. And they ended up surrendering the dog to a rescue who I didn't trust at all. And that rescue sent him to a board and train that I didn't trust at all. And again, because I don't have the experience or the skills to speak to that, I just knew I didn't have a good feeling. I couldn't really say anything. And I don't know where he is now. I don't know what he's doing. I don't even know if he's alive. And honestly, it's something that keeps me up at night to this day. And this was like almost four years ago. So I remember that story always, too, just because like people think about behaviorist as being like the best of the best. And it's it's not that they aren't. I don't have anything against behaviorists, but I, I don't even know what it takes to call yourself a behaviorist. I don't know. It's it's as far as I understand it. And I could be wrong. I think it's a master's degree in animal behavior is my understanding. Okay. Just to be totally clear on that story, she did not hire me as a trainer. She hired me to drop yeah. in on her dog and I just was practicing. That's all it was. Yeah. Okay. So I said kind of what this episode and what you made me realize and, and think about a little bit more. So what sort of great lessons have I taught you? <laughs> So something that did really make me think was when you were saying that sometimes there's just not an option to wait around for positive training. Like a dog might be in danger of losing his home or, again, God forbid, his life. And of course, in a perfect world, we can convince that owner to take the time, put in the effort, do things the most effective way. But I'm thinking, I just need to think harder. Maybe I need to be more open-minded about what I should be expecting from my clients and for now, I don't I don't think that I'm the right person to use aversive tools. I can't bring myself to do it. But maybe instead of just saying, you have to do it this way, I can tell them what their options are, even if I don't like those options. Yeah. And I think, too, just not even not even in the like realm of using aversives, but just in the realm of like changing the way you deal with people. Right. Mm -hmm. Like. Just I feel like changing the way you think about things like that is the important part. It's not that I'm trying to convince you that, you know, sometimes you're going to have to use a prong to solve a problem. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Right. But just getting the idea of like, yeah, you know, sometimes you're going to have to to make some shortcuts and, and get creative. So here is my question for you. If you have a situation where you do feel like you need to implement those techniques that you're not necessarily a fan of or that you wouldn't normally use right off the bat. Do you also follow up that training with some sort of positive training to like solidify that behavior? Absolutely. One of my first experiences with prong collars was what I considered a pretty bad placement. <laughs> it was a super young, they got it as a puppy, um, huge dog. He's 90 plus pounds. And just because the podcast is geared toward the average dog owner, when she says not a great placement, she means the dog was not a great fit for that home or that home was not a great yes. fit for that dog. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So this is a, a huge puppy that has grown up and is now, you know, 80, 90 plus pounds. He's always been kind of allowed to do he's he's more of that personality that's like, I'm going to I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> and his parents happily let him do what he wanted. 
and they weren't great with boundaries and things like that. And they were an older couple. And so now you have this 80, 90 pound dog with very little boundaries and very little obedience and all of that. And there's just no way that this dog is not going to hurt these people. Like it just wasn't, it wasn't a thing. And yeah, obviously I don't think that dog was a good fit for that family, but I'm also not going to tell them. And I do sometimes, but in this situation, I'm not going to tell them, oh, give up your dog. Right. Right. I, I absolutely tell clients, like, if they have a newly adopted dog or something and they're having issues, I will 100% tell them, like, hey, this is not a good fit. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not afraid to say that to people, but somebody that went out and, and bought the puppy that they want, I'm not going to tell them to give it up. Right. And even if you do tell them that, that is their decision. They're not going to listen. Yeah. And so if they decide yeah. not to, then that's the situation you're in. Yeah. But there was just there was no way that they could safely take this dog out. Um, so yeah, I did cave a little bit as far as walks and using the prong. And so we would spend our entire sessions working on boundaries in the house to try to get him to just listen a little bit more and just have a little bit more respect and improve the walk the best that we could, right? So I didn't teach them to pop the prong or correct him or anything like that. I basically taught them that like, hey, when we're going out for walks, he needs to sit to be geared up. He needs to sit and wait at the door. And then we still did the same kind of leash training of, hey, if he's pulling, then we go backwards. And if he's, you know, if he's reacting, we position him so that we're in between him and the car and we try to give ourselves more space. And we did all the training that I would normally do on any other equipment, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we absolutely do a ton of training that has nothing to do with that, that equipment. I don't think I can say the next episode is ready to be let out of the kennel. You have to. I just to. can't you have say to do it. it. You've got to do not, it. I'm not saying it. You have to. Um, <laughs> all right. So I think that about wraps it up. Our second episode is, I'm not saying it. You can say it. No, you have right. to. You I have think, to. I'm not doing it. Uh, I think that about wraps it up. Just a reminder, you can find me on Instagram at properpupperslv or at my website, properpupperslv.com. <laughs> Okay, apparently I cannot get Laura to say our tagline, (laughs) which is, our second episode is ready to be let out of the kennel. And you can find me on Instagram at Miss Lily's Dogs, on my website, MissLily'sDogs.com, or on my online training platform, Patreon.com slash Dogs. On our next episode, we will be drinking watermelon-themed margaritas and talking about the best way to pick your next dog. Should you get a puppy or an adult or a senior dog? Is a certain breed going to work best for you? Should you adopt from a responsible rescue or a responsible breeder? Next time on the Doggery Develop podcast. Thanks for listening to Doggeritaville. Send us an email at doggeritaville at gmail.com. Or send us a DM on Instagram at doggeritaville. And let us know if there are any topics you'd like to see covered. Or if there are any margaritas you want us to try. And don't forget to leave us a review. Until next time, give your dog a treat from us. <laughs>